Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. Well, good morning. Good morning to everyone in the Zendo. Good morning to everybody joining online and to anyone who hears this talk through a recording. Today, I want to talk about transmission in Buddhism with examples of transmission, warm hand to warm hand, from ancient times to contemporary times. What I hope this talk will convey is a sense of what transmission can mean for regular people in regular lives in our modern society, people like us. But it's gonna be a long way around. The subject, like each of us, is oceanic and intricately complex, which means I can only touch on a few aspects of it at best. And I, I must say my heart is very anxious and yet I promised to give a talk today, so I will. This will play into some of the stories that come up next. Um, I will say, as Jessica and Nate will say at some point tomorrow, my errors will fill heaven and earth, and I beg your pardon in advance. So tomorrow is Earth Day, and I want to start with a story that's connected to the Earth of one kind of transmission the aspect of transmission that is witnessing, testifying to the truth of another's story or actions, to use an old word, vouchsafing. <clears throat> it's a scene of epic cosmic struggle, a scene of meditative concentration raised to a mythic level. One person who has left behind a life of ease and privilege maybe leaving behind his father and stepmother or, or in other versions of the story, slipping away from a wife and child without saying goodbye. This person has gone into homelessness. Thousands of others in his region of the world are doing the same thing at this time, searching for the truth. For six years or more, he studies with various teachers and he practices intense privations that take him to the knife's, the knife's edge between life and death. Why privations? He's embedded in a culture in which the best people think that the body is inherently evil and, the only, and only the deathless world of spirit is good. And by comparison, the worst people simply pursue self-gratification. This is familiar in the West, at least since the time of Plato. And why not? Our bodies get sick and old, and our capacities erode over time, and we lose everyone we care about eventually, and there's no way to escape death. Ideas seem deathless and pure by comparison. Better to find some way to pursue them, right? To break the sensual chains that keep us from contact with the spiritual realm. Sensual chains like sexuality, like hunger and thirst. Barry Madgett, a psychiatrist and a teacher whom I admire, a great writer, 
who was a student of Joko Beck's, has written, Long ago, I intuited that whatever is there to realize about life and death is something that is hidden in plain sight. We struggle to accept the truth that has been there right before our eyes all along. Before setting out on his journey of discovery, the young Prince Siddhartha is said to have looked upon old age, sickness and death for the first time and been shaken to his core, saying to himself that, quote, these things must ultimately be rejected. After six years of privations, one day Siddhartha is literally dying in a ditch when a young woman shares some food with him and he revives enough to remember that there is also inherent joy in life and that that can be a basis for further investigation. It is said that he then sat down under a tree to meditate until he could continue his quest in a different way. He succeeds, flipping the script from his culture. Yes, he sees, there is sadness in life, but the real problem is the suffering we cause ourselves. We think we are separate from everything else, but we are not. In fact, everything is connected inextricably, and everything is in constant change. And this is the source of what produces sadness, but it is also a realization that gives us strength and joy. We don't see this because it's hard to do so. It's an innocent mistake, as Peg has described it, which we are led into by our physiology, the way our brains work, the way our bodies operate, our language, our culture, the history of our society, our family life, and so on. Siddhartha notices that before we are, aware, we are aware of sensations and thoughts, part of our mind has already ca characterized them as pleasant or unpleasant, good or bad. And every moment of our lives embedded in this process, we are suspended between wanting to go on living uh, and, and to, to go on living the pleasant stuff and wanting to die to get away from the unpleasant stuff. Really waking up to interconnectedness and change can free us from unnecessary suffering, he says. And, that, and the first step is to simply examine our thought processes and those, these judgments that precede even our most intimate thoughts. We can find that we have sources of goodness, generosity, gratitude, loving kindness and sympathetic joy, equanimity and more. The, uh, resources that emerge when we are not giving all our energies to maintaining our suffering. So the Buddha has developed these realizations and he's sitting under a tree through the night. As I say, it's a scene of cosmic struggle because in the story, he is changing human history and changing, take, taking a new view of the potential of human nature. In the story, it's almost dawn. At the start of Gautama's meditation, gods and heavenly forces, perhaps metaphysical stand-ins for our higher aspirations or the spirit world, uh, they were gathered around him in support. But then Mara, the demon king, the manifestation of all that binds us to suffering, arrives attended by vast armies of fear, sensuality, greed, anger, and delusion. 
and the heavenly gods run away. In an online essay by Buddhist teachers and ecologists David Loy and John Stanley, published on Huffington Post in 2011, they present a stripped-down version of the critical moment. In one of Buddhism's iconic images, Gautama sits in meditation with his left hand, with his left palm upright on his lap, while his right hand touches the earth. Demonic forces have struggled all night long to unseat him because their king, Mara, claims that uh, that place under the Bodhi tree, that place that will determine how humans see themselves from now on. As they proclaim their leader's powers, Mara takes on a new role, speaking as the voice of self-doubt. Mara dem demands to know who Gotama thinks he is, trying to change the entire world. And he demands that Gotama produce a witness to confirm his spiritual awakening and his right to hold that seat. The Buddha simply touches the earth with his right hand, a gesture known as Bhumi Sparsha, gesture of touching the earth, or the earth witness mudra, the Mara Vijaya. And Bhumi, the earth goddess herself, immediately responds, I am your witness. Mara and his minions vanish. The morning star appears in the sky. Again, it's important that Gotama called on the earth, not the heavenly gods. And what he was connecting with mean, is important to all of us. As Barry, as Barry Majid writes, after all those years of struggle, the essence of his realization was precisely that old age, sickness, and death are not to be rejected, but are inescapable. That impermanence is the most fundamental thing, not only for our human lives, but about everything in the universe. He continues in, my, in, in describing his favorite version of the story in which Shakyamuni looks up at the morning star and simply says, that's me. Maybe, he writes, when you hear the phrase, that's me, you imagine the Buddha proclaiming his oneness, whatever that is, uh, with the star and everything in the universe. Majid says, I have a different reaction. I imagine him sitting under the tree after all those years of struggling to master his mind and body, struggling to master the secret of life and death. Suddenly he looks at the star twinkling in the sky and realizes the star hasn't struggled at all in order to be just what it is, to be perfect just as it is. And he thought, I too am just what I am. I'm exactly like that star, manifesting my nature perfectly moment after moment. And everything in the world, like me, like the star, is perfectly, fully expressing its own nature. Everything in this moment is a Buddha, a perfectly realized being. What a shame not to realize it. What a shame to imagine that a star or any being needs to become something more than it already is. What the star already is, however, is not some platonically pure or eternal essence of starness, but ever-changing. Again, this is very magic. Perfection and change aren't opposites. They turn out to be synonyms. Not only don't we have to change in order to become perfect, our perfection manifests moment after moment and change itself. At the website Buddha's Path, the authors write about the Bhumi Sparsha. 
The doctrine of dependent arising and interdependence are connected to the earth as witness. All phenomena, in a nutshell, are dependent on all other phenomena. This is central to the truth of shunyata, of emptiness. Once all the delusions are stripped away, shunyata means that we are ultimately empty of individual being, but that we are wonderfully part of a whole, in oneness with all. Interdependent arising tells us that tells us that all beings depend on others, just as we depend on all the elements, earth, air, water, and energy. It also informs us that without the perceiver, there is no perceived, a very ancient and a very modern notion. So in this critical moment, in, and in the thousands of depictions of, uh, of this moment that have followed, we have a transmission through vouchsafing of witness that in a single gesture brings the threads of Buddha's teachings together. Uh, Jay, I know, is online, and I heard her say last Wednesday during the Wednesday evening um, uh, session that we had, uh, when Robin told this story and brought it to my mind again, luckily for me, um, she said that she was reminded of the Hebrew uh, Christian teaching about humans being formed out of dust by God. <clears throat> she said something like, we humans are talking dirt. Um, uh, that was true for the Buddha too. He didn't call on the heavenly gods for witness. They had gone. He called on an embodiment of his earthy nature. In the myth, the goddess Bhumi, I picture her as a giantess as big as the Himalayas, responded by speaking for him and then winding her hair into an enormous rope from which giant rivers flow, washing Mara and all his arguments against awakening away so that the Buddha could begin his teaching career. If you're like me, you don't tend to think of your life in mythic terms. In our culture, self-doubt and any number of ways of numbing ourselves to, to its fearful effects are always present, no more than a click away. Helping us, helping turn us away from our path. So Mara is still with us, of course, all the time. And I've never seen a goddess, but I have looked in awe at mountains and rivers and the ever-changing sky. I'm moved by the poetic notion that the earth itself, which generated all life, witnesses and gives birth to the awakening of all beings. How could it be otherwise? When Peg, worked, when Peg worked with Flint and with Vicki Austin of the San Francisco Zen Center on Flint's recent Dharma transmission, she was offering herself as a witness, attesting through a rigorous, formal, uh, a very beautiful process to the strength and depth of Flint's practice. Ceremonies were performed, documents were generated that were mostly shared just between the two, or the two or three of them. They were attested to, vouchsafed. Like Gotama, Peg and Flint have embraced lives of teaching and service. I don't know Vicki Austin well, but I'm, I'm sure that it's the same for her. We can see the effects of this embrace on the way they act, generously, with loving kindness and wisdom. The next story is about transmission, not of knowledge or doctrine, 
but as a method of evaluating truth claims. And it comes, again, fairly early in the Buddha's life. It comes from one of my favorite other Buddha stories called the Discourse to the Kalamas. It shows the Buddha as a healer, not a metaphysician. He doesn't show up to, to expound ideas. Asked how to evaluate the conflicting claims of various teachers in the area who praise themselves and denigrate others by the leadership of this uh, ethnic group called the Kalamas, the Buddha says, and this is from Tanisara Biko's uh, translation, of course you are uncertain, Kalamas. Of course you are in doubt. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So in this case, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by thought, or, or by the thought, this con contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities uh, in a teaching or a teacher are unskillful, that they are blameworthy, that they are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carry out, carried out, can lead to harm and to suffering, abandon them. In a teacher and in teachings, look for the qualities of compassion, of appreciation, of generosity, and of equanimity, the Buddha says. When you find them, you can test their effects on your own life. Does the daily practice of embodying the teachings free you from the ill effects of hatred, greed, and delusion? At least somewhat? If so, trust them. Will they give you a better afterlife? The Buddha asks the Kalamas. And then he answers his own question. Who knows? It doesn't matter. But you can tell the effects of following good teachings and embracing these qualities right here in this life, which is enough. I love that part. I was talking with a friend recently, a very dedicated practitioner, who asked me how I could justify picking and choosing among the sutras to lean so heavily on this one and ignore all the Buddhist stories in which claims of holiness, supernatural powers, and other things appear. It's a fair question. I don't know how I can justify that, except that to me, the question and its answer are both contained in and supported in the Kalama Sutra. What teachings can be said to lead to cultivation of compassion, generosity, appreciation, uh, equanimity, and other virtues, which can be tested in this life? For me, they are the simple, plain-spoken ones, the earthy ones. So, transmission not of special knowledge, but of, but of a message, and of an underlying I'm sorry, of a method and of an underlying message, which is, you can do this. It may not be easy since, as George Orwell would say 2,500 years later, it is the work of a lifetime to see what is actually right in front of you. But the Buddha expressed confidence to the Kalamas and over and over again to all the people he worked with. Confidence in the ability of people to awaken and free themselves from suffering. Later followers might decide that it can take more than a lifetime, in fact, many lifetimes, or that it may take the in intervention of Buddhas with mystical powers, uh, and uh, again, the reemergence of a he heavenly realm that can help us. Others in, the, in our Zen tradition 
would go on to aggressively hold the idea that we can leap beyond our human conditioning in this very lifetime and that we have that that opportunity in every moment so uh, now I want to jump to another story about 1500 years later um, and it is of two Zen masters who are very very uh, important in this teaching that that uh, the opportunity to awaken uh, is available to us at all times. Uh, it stars two of my favorite figures from the Zen canon, uh, Yunyan, who looked like a great failure at first, who be, but who then became a revered teacher, and Dongshan, his heir, and the fount of dozens of confounding koans, such as Shenshan is sewing in the courtyard. Dongshan walks by. And he says, what are you doing? And Shen Shan says, uh, sewing? Because he knows this is a, a setup. And Dong Shan says, well, how do you go about it? He says, well, you know, one stitch follows another. How would you say it, Master? And Dong Shan says, as if the entire world were. Sorry for cracking, for uh, tearing up. I do that when I when I read things that are really great. You've seen me do it before. I love you. I'm, I'm gonna try and make it through this poem. I'm gonna read in a minute without without tearing up. So here is a story of Dongshan leaving his teacher Yunnan from the record of Dongshan. When Dongshan was ready to leave his teacher Yunnan, Dongshan asked. That Dongshan, the student, said, Later on, if someone asks me if I can depict your reality or your teaching, how shall I reply? Yunyan paused and said, Just this is it. When he heard that, Dongshan sank into thought, and Yunyan said, You are in charge of this great matter now. You must be most thoroughgoing. Dongshan left Yunyan and was still perplexed. He didn't quite get it. As he proceeded, he was wading across a stream and then seeing his reflection in the water, he had some understanding. He looked down in the stream and he saw something and when he wrote, and, and then he wrote this poem. Just don't seek from others or you'll be far estranged from yourself. Now I go on alone, but everywhere I meet it, it now is me, I now am not it. One must understand this in this way to merge with suchness. Just this is it, like touching the earth and the earth bearing witness. Don't seek from others, like the advice to the Kalamas to test our own minds and their discoveries against the real life effects that they produce. Now I have an excerpt from a, a, a retelling of this, a beautiful poem by Trudy Johnston from the book called Through the Dragon Gate that was made by Trudy and by Cassie Wyant of Austin. Um, and it's a, I'll just say it's available from Cassie as a PDF or as a printed copy. And it's full of beautiful images and, and amazing poetry. So uh, in this excerpt, Trudy writes, in ancient times, a student Dongshan readies himself to leave his teacher, Yunyan, preparing for a long track a long trek to another place, 
The end is not known. The country is rough and dangerous. A bond has been forged through time and shared, search, shared searching and being together. A bond with his teacher that Yunyan, that uh, Dongshan is choosing to stretch. <clears throat> As he stands contemplating this precious connection, he feels the sadness of irretrievable loss. To never return, to never know what might unfold, to not be here together. Master, he says, a catch in his voice, I'm leaving you now. What shall I say, if I'm asked, is the essence of your work? The master looks around at him, inside himself, long, their long history, and into the not yet known future. The world turning, as always, again and again. He says, just this, just this is it. Dongshan allows that to settle into his bones. He feels the ending beginning. His master, too, feels the stretch, the space between them opening. Yonyan looks tenderly toward his pupil. After your departure, it will be hard to meet again, he says. A soft look, a wisely amused look, passes between. If the student is ready to leave, then sadness is appropriate. A testament to love and importance. In the Quechua language, there is no word goodbye. There is tupanan chiksama, meaning until life finds us again. Ah, says the student, it will be hard not to meet. Whatever we do, wherever we are, the imprint of connection will echo over any distance, any time. Whatever I look at now, how I look at it, will be because of all the connections and relationships I have made. I will carry you with me as I am carried with you. There is no way for us to be apart. Again, talk to Cassie Wayant for uh, copies of the book if you'd like it. In this poem, I think Trudy has distilled something about the way that Buddhism came through thousands of years of earnest inquiry to value human connection, not just individual striving, to see that it is absolutely necessary to living the Dharma, even if it means loss, and that, like the Buddha and the sixth Chan ancestor, we need sometimes to slip away from our old life before, before returning to share what we have found that is true and conducive to living wisely and well. The Dharma calls us to live fully. Todd will take up the thread of transmission tomorrow, connecting it to Val. I've heard him thinking through some of, uh, through some of his ideas, and I know it's going to be really good. I want to take a moment to thank him for his work in uh, making this intensive happen, happen as it is. Uh, you know, I'm just kicking back here in Albuquerque, so. I'm, I'm... <laughs> uh, I also thank our monitors and timekeepers, our cooks and cleanup crew, and everyone for bringing their presence and grace to this intensive. Again, thanks to our head students, Jessica and Nate. Tomorrow, they will hold the staff that they can't put down, a symbol for the service they're already embarked on. We'll have more chances to say thanks by name at our closing circle tomorrow. In conclusion, as Dogen writes in the Eihei Koso Hotsu Gonman, Buddhas and ancestors of old were like us. We in the future shall be Buddhas and ancestors. 
revering Buddhas and ancestors, we are one Buddha and one ancestor. I'll have an exercise to share this afternoon that will ask you to contemplate this extraordinary claim and what it can mean in your life. I welcome any questions. Thank you. Anne would like to ask you a question, Joel. Maria, yes. Thank you for your talk. When you were speaking about the Buddha having his realization under the Bodhi tree and interacting with the <coughs> said that he realized that all being has nature, a certain kind of nature that I interpreted as Buddha nature that's there all the time. So what is that nature? Is it a separate thing? What I what I recall saying is is something slightly uh, sideways to just how you described it. That what he said was he realized that everything was interconnected, everything constantly changing, but that there were capacities within us that just as our just as there were conditions of this human life that have to do with our bodies and our minds and all the all the effects of change that we try to resist, but that there were also capacities of loving kindness, of generosity, of gratitude, of equanimity that could give us the, um, uh, the means for uh, taking up the path, for uh, meeting challenges uh, like self-doubt, challenges like fear and aggression and anger, and meet those uh, and not be overwhelmed by them, but to incorporate them into a full life that uh, is matched by these uh, other capacities that can make us more whole. Is that a separate thing? I, I don't know a source to cite or, or anything to say um, where the Buddha would say it was a separate thing. He would just say, this is what I see in my observations. See if you can find the same things. Is that, does that answer your question, Anne? Or is it, I, I, su I suspect that you're asking something much deeper than I'm answering. <clears throat> That's a, a fine answer. Thank you. Okay. I was going to say that uh, asking about our nature, 
And if it's a separate thing, we are of the nature of separating. That's dualism. Looking for the separation. Yeah, Kim would like to ask a question. Kim. It's kind of a comment, but what will, what I'll remember most about your talks and this talk are the way the Dharma touches you. And it reminded me of um, uh, like 48 years ago, I worked with an art historian who taught the Renaissance and I made slides for her from books. That was my job. And whenever she would look at paintings from the Renaissance, she could barely talk and her eyes would fill up with tears. And at the time I thought that was so silly. And um, that's something I remember so profoundly about what that time, and it makes more and more sense that that, that it becomes a teaching in a sense. And I was imagining if I could, if I didn't know English at all, but I could just watch you and how, you know, what that, that talk would be pretty great too. So thank you. What a generous thing to say, Kim. Thank you so much. And what a beautiful comparison. You know, I just, I, I have come to embrace this as uh, kind of a hazard and kind of a opportunity in my talks as just in the way you're describing. I mean, you know, my right hand is my dominant hand. That's not going to change anytime soon, I don't think. Uh, and I tear up when I read something beautiful. Now I am. <laughs> Rosemary would like to say something, Joel. Rosemary, welcome. Thank you. Um, I thought it was really interesting how the gods ran away when Mara and her her um, soldiers, whatever her folks came, and how powerful, yes, fear and uh, self-doubt are. And um, and uh, how powerful the uh, testimony of Earth was. I thought it was, but yes, the power of uh, yeah, fear and self doubt. Oh, and then the river, her hair, uh, <clears throat> being formed into these strands of the river, which which floated them away. Right. Um, which, in fact, in nature do flow out of the Himalayas in an enormous flood or many, many floods. So the, the imagery was beautiful. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much. Well, it was yeah, a beautiful I, talk. You know, the, 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 the myth would not have any power except that it maps so closely onto our lived experience. Absolutely. Fear, greed, anger, the potential for generosity, the, the power of a witness to our struggles.
and to our awakening. Right. And like Todd said, that's the the uh, the powerful tendency to separate because mm-hmm. fear, self-doubt, these th- all these things pull us away from each other. Indeed. And I, to me, one of the most important teachings of the Buddha is that one about feelings, what, what he calls feelings, which don't mean feelings in the sense like we normally use it in English, but this this subconscious characterization or categorization that happens before we even are aware of our thoughts or our perceptions, that they are already slotted in. This is good. This is bad. I want to get away from this. I want to keep that. What do I have to do next? You know, and, and, and then everything else takes off from that. But he offered this, you know, this deep psychological insight and a path to awakening qualities that can help you see through it so that it doesn't dominate everything. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Stephanie. (laughs) Thank you. So I don't know, because I, I know nothing about the academics of this path, um, but I'm, I've always been curious why, and is there anything that supports it, why the earth? Why is it that when the Buddha touched the earth, that's what supported it? What is it about the earth? that is so important here. Well, I have some thoughts about that, as a matter of fact, that I tried to, that I tried to express in the talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have, that we share with the people of the Buddha's time, uh, an orientation to uh, our lives, which indicate that the body is bad. Like I say, of course, who wouldn't think it is bad? We age, we die, we lose so much. You know, that's bad. Everybody hates that, right? And that, as Plato said, there's another world out there. It's so beautiful. It's the ideal. Our life is just a shadow of this ideal world. Mm-hmm. Let's pursue the truth of the of the glorious shining ideals. You know, Plato said that. Mm-hmm. But you know. I mean, I think that the the metaphor in the story of the Buddha, which is so powerful, again, because it maps onto our experience so well, is that that when assailed by fear, anger, doubt, rage, uncontrollable sensuality, you know, from uh, overwhelming sexual desire to uh, being unable to put down that bag of Doritos, all those things. Plato's ideal ideal world is no help. But by realizing our interconnectedness with all beings, and by and by embodying, you know, taking that in and being really serious about it, that is helpful. Then we can see a path to acting generously. No, we can see a path to taking it easy on ourselves and others, you know, not 
reacting with rage to the person who cuts us off in traffic, not spending all our time in meditation, letting our um, inner critic slam us over and over again, you know? But just to have the equanimity and the generosity and the, and the loving kindness to meet these, uh, all these aspects of life that are, they're coming up in life and they are roiling in our heads thousands of times faster than we can process them. Turning and turning and turning, you know? Knowing that, it's much better it's, you know, I, I think the metaphor of the story of the Buddha's awakening is that, you know, what is real is what is real. And the, the physical world is much more helpful than a bunch of made up ideas about what's ideal and what's, uh, uh, okay. what's, what's out there that can guide us. That, that we actually, it's just some words that we're making up, you know. That, I got that. Thank you very much. That was so helpful. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. Well, I thank you. I thank you so much for these wonderful questions. Uh, I would like to, as as uh, Todd said the other day, that we might have an opportunity to do to call an audible now, to just say uh, we are scheduled we we're scheduled at uh, ten thirty your time to um, go back into zazen. So I propose that we have a break now. Everybody can stretch or use the restroom or go outside. I. I you know, if you want to touch the earth, that would be a good idea. And uh, uh, just see what that evokes in you. Appamada's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much.